What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 49 of the Triage Method podcast. This week, we're going to be talking a little bit about exercise again. But before we get started, Paddy, how are you this week? I am positively fantastic, Gary. It's been a good week. Super. <laughs> yeah, so what we're going to discuss today is kind of a discussion about thought processes around exercises and although we're going to give some specific examples i don't want people to take away from this that this is uh, a comprehensive discussion of all of the different possible permutations and different cues and different thought processes that you could have around exercise what i want you to really get from this podcast today is the ability to critically evaluate your thought processes or to critically evaluate information you receive uh, or consume around certain exercise modalities. Because this this is something that you, you see a lot of, which unfortunately colors people's ideas about exercise, about training. And in some cases, it can lead to, you know, a, a thought process of fragility, you know, which obviously is something that we're totally against. Um, but also it can lead to altering your your exercises to achieve a certain outcome because the thought process sounds very intuitive, but it's not actually factual, right? So you could be essentially spinning your wheels trying to achieve something based on flawed information, which is obviously something that we want to try to help you avoid because we actually want you to get results, you know? So we're going to talk a few specifics, but I want you to overall think of this in terms of, okay, so they're telling me to critically evaluate this specific cue. Am I doing the same thing with all the other cues I have around different exercises? Or they're telling me to critically evaluate this specific training thought process am i doing the same with all the other training thought processes i have now obviously a lot of you listening to this are you know we'll call you casual gym goers like you're not in this to you know learn every single possible thing about the gym you know you're not like this is not your primary focus it's like yeah you enjoy going to the gym you enjoy training you you know, or trying to get some results, whether it be losing fat, whether it be gaining muscle, whether it be gaining strength, et cetera, et cetera, whatever your goals are. That's cool, right? So this is still for you. I don't want you to think like, oh, well, this is just for the the strength coaches, the personal trainers, whatever out there. Like that's, this obviously is going to help them as well. But this is a discussion for everyone because while you don't have to go down the rabbit hole and you know critically evaluate every single approach that you you have it does help you to start thinking about these things and it kind of gives you a bit more freedom in terms of allowing you to understand how you should train understand how you can kind of modify things so that you can still get the results you want without having to be dogmatic in your approach purely based on the fact that some quote-unquote fitness person you know, told you that you should do this exercise this way or do this exercise to achieve this certain result, you know? So basically this is going to be a discussion in 
critically evaluating information around exercises. And with that, I'm going to hand you back over to Gary. Perfect. So this topic was actually requested by one of my clients. So shout out to you, James. But basically the way he framed it was that there's a lot of things that he sees on social media, you know, certain tips and, and tricks for exercises that he kind of questions and thinks, I don't know if that's actually beneficial or if that is kind of bro science. And the thing is, with a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about, like Paddy said, they seem intuitive, you know, and they're, they they appeal to that sort of logical thought process. It's like, oh yeah, that seems logical. You know, if I put my foot here or my hand here, or I change my grip to here, it would make sense that that sort of trains that muscle. And the thing is, as a trainee or even, a, you know, a personal trainer early in their career, you're probably not going to be the best at critically evaluating exactly what muscles might be affected when you change a certain parameter parameter of an exercise um so you might be able to spot these things all the time and that's why it's important for you know people putting out information to not just try to appeal to intuitive explanations but actually explain exactly why this is the case with whatever they're saying so the first one that i kind of just 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 on that gary because this is something that you will see a lot of on social media and it's actually a really good tool thought process tool i don't know what you would call it to kind of start critically evaluating information that you receive on social media Uh, and it is whether people give an explanation as to what they're suggesting now i'm not saying like they have to give an explanation you know that's fully referenced like it's social media after all and like realistically at the end of the day you should not be getting all of your information around exercise and nutrition or whatever else from social media like if that's where you're getting all of your information like i would you know take a step back and you know read a book (laughs) um but it, it is a good tool if you look at the information people are putting out and if they just give you this vague soundbite but never actually explain the reasoning why that happens or how that happens like that, that, that's a red flag in my eyes where you start going, okay, I'm not necessarily asking them to explain every little fucking detail. And, you know, a lot of this is on the individual themselves as well. Like, it, like if you have literally no, no, none at all information about exercise, about nutrition, about whatever health and whatever it is, and you start going, oh, well, he didn't give this explanation of this little snippet which is to everyone else who has like a baseline understanding like that's very basic information like if someone says like a calorie deficit and you're just like whoa 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 it's a red flag he didn't tell me what a calorie deficit is like that's not what i'm talking about you know so i'm assuming you're coming to this with at least some sort of understanding you know a vague idea of what the terminology means you know again not asking you to be an expert not asking you to know everything but you know, a casual understanding of the, this whole field. If people are giving you information and they're giving you this advice and it's saying like, oh, do this to target the upper inner chest or whatever the fuck else it is. And they just don't explain how that occurs or like why this would, what, like how the change they made is going to make that occur. That would be a, a red flag in my eyes. So I would start critically, more critically evaluating the information I got from that individual. Because again, sometimes you can give this information or you can give out information 
And to you as a fitness professional, you could go, oh, actually, this is pretty intuitive. Like everyone knows this. And you kind of forget that, you know, everyone doesn't know this, you know? So I'm not saying you should just be like, right, I'm writing that person off or this person off because they didn't explain every little minutia of what they said in this literally a social media post. That's not what I'm saying. But if they don't give you a reasoning behind what they're saying, then it starts raising red flags in my eyes. But anyway, go on, Gary. Yeah, and and just to, to elaborate on, because <clears throat> I think like the, the point you're making is that we should we should be teaching a thought process here as opposed to the specific things I'm about to list. And to add to that, like one of the ways I like to think about exercise is split it up into two different components. So you th- you're not just so the, f- the first part of the discussion is about the exercise and the second part is about the adaptation. OK, because this happens a lot on social media, um, particularly when I've talked about any maybe exercise specifics, exercise mechanics stuff. People will say, um, oh, but is this going to make a difference uh, to my strength or hypertrophy outcomes? And I'm like, to be honest, like it mightn't. It might not make much of a difference, um, especially, you know, over the short term, maybe some minute difference of the long term. But like what you have to realize is that like there's a difference between designing a good exercise and saying that, oh, it's going to drastically change your adaptations because realistically your adaptations are primarily driven by the fact that you're resistance training those muscles in general, eating enough protein and doing that over a long period of time. Like that's making up the majority of your results. Like that's the harsh reality, but that doesn't mean we should stop at that and say that it's not worth designing good exercises because at the end of the day, exercise for a lot of people is something we want to make a desirable experience. So if you have the option of choosing between two exercises and one quote unquote feels really good, it feels efficient, it's challenging throughout the range, there's not any you know points that just feel really weird or you get a little bit of joint pain and you have the option of another exercise that feels just kind of crap, even if the adaptation at the end of the day is going to be fairly similar, it would make a lot of sense to choose the exercise that was designed well. Um, so like that's the start of any discussion is about designing the exercise and then worrying about the adaptation. OK, so that's my thought process. And you're going to see how that kind of plays out in some of the points we're going to talk about. Yeah. And just, so, just on like, that as well, like on that as well, like when, when, when you're looking at it, like what, what you're saying is you're when you're talking about modifying exercises, like obviously you're talking about any changes in the adaptation after that. But you also have to, it's essentially a circle because, you know, you're, you're talking about, you're, you're obviously going to design the exercises or pick exercises based on the adaptation you're trying to elicit, you know, like you wouldn't just go like, yes. oh, I'm trying to grow my chest. <laughs> I'm trying to grow my chest. So let's do some hack squats. Like you're, you're, you're obviously not going to do that. So it obviously starts with the goal, which is obviously the end adaptation, even if it's not a very specific thing if you know what i mean like you're like oh generally speaking i want to lose fat and gain muscle you start with that framework which is obviously the adaptation then you start making exercises you start getting specifics and then you can start modifying the exercises but then you can start talking about the adaptations again after that like you said earlier on like it's like well what what is the difference between you know say i just use a hack squat as an example but what's the difference between like a squat and a hack squat and it's like well you know what are the adaptations you're going to get after that and then you can discuss whether these adaptations are meaningful you know it's like oh well they're both training the quads so it's like well will i see a difference in the the outcome like the 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 hypertrophy that i get from that or maybe even the strength that i get from that 
like, am I going to see a noticeable difference? And if it's not, then maybe you go, yeah, that's fine. That we can do either or, you know, which, which do you prefer? If you say, okay, well, my sport is actually powerlifting. So the outcome is getting better at the squat. Then why would you choose the hack squat over the squat? You know, so it, it is a kind of continuum where you have to look at the adaptation. You have to look at the exercise selection and modification, and you have to look at the adaptation you get at the end. But as Gary's going to go into now, I can kind of see where he's going with this. There are like some of this to an extent is meaningless. You know, like you, we can have a discussion about stuff and go like at the end of the day, it doesn't really fucking matter. But at the same time, it, it obviously it obviously does matter because, you know, you could choose an exercise because you believe it's, it's the exercise you have to do to get results, whereas it's not really the exercise or, or an exercise that you have to do to get results. And the fact that you get this little shoulder niggle, elbow niggle, wrist niggle doing this exercise you know, that, that kind of defeats the purpose because then you're not getting the adaptation you want because you're not quote unquote built for that exercise, you know? So it's a meaningless discussion until it becomes meaningful, you know? So that might not appear, you may not understand that initially, but hopefully by the end of this, you'll, you'll understand what we're saying. Anyway, go on, Gary. Sorry for interrupting you yet again. Yeah, but I think I think a good way to think about it that's probably a little bit more intuitive, not that I just want to appeal to your intuition. But if you compare this to like nutrition, like there's a difference between nutrition and food. You know, if you talk about like a meal that is a certain number of calories and macronutrients and you say, all right, we want to have it composed of chicken, broccoli and rice like that chicken, broccoli and rice can be all just boiled and left plain or it could be, you know, spiced up really nice, cooked very well tastes delicious and like ultimately i think if you're designing exercise like if you have the option you want it to be closer to that second you know spice tasty meal than the plain boring old meal that's not actually enjoyable obviously the body composition outcomes from eating those two meals are very likely to be the exact same and the same can be said for exercise so that's a useless way a useful way of thinking about it but this will all make more sense once we get into some of the specific examples so the first example that james suggested was pointing your toes outwards and inwards on the leg extension so this is typically suggested and has been for a long time to bias certain portions of the quads so the idea being you know that you rotate your leg outward it's going to hit one part of the quad you rotate your leg inward it's going to hit another part of the quad and hence you should be doing that to hit the specific muscles but there's a couple of points that to, to break down here that that sort of render this pretty much pointless um, and just not a good idea in general. The first one is that the knee has two degrees of freedom. Okay, so it, what it can do, it can flex and extend and it can rotate. So your foot, you can point it in and out, some more than others. You know, I've got quite a lot of knee external rotation. Some people have very little and I've got very little knee internal rotation. So with that in mind, if I was to try and, you know, point my toes in that's going to come purely from my thigh so that's going to be thigh rotation and that's not doing anything from the perspective of, of training my quads so the knee does not like abduct and adduct unless you've got like a, a torn lateral or medial collateral ligament but basically like your knee does not move to the point where your your foot moves out away from your thigh when it's straight it just doesn't really move in those directions so the knee can move forward and back and it can rotate but the catch there 
is that the knee only rotates when it's flexed. So when your knee is bent, you can move your foot inwards and outwards. You can try that while you're listening to this podcast if you're if you're sitting down. So point your toe out to the side and back into the center. That will work with your knee bent. But when you straighten out your leg, because of the way that the knee is built with the menisci and the way the condyles, you know, roll along the, menis- the menisci, the knee is essentially locked when it is straight. It won't rotate in that position. Okay, if it is, that's probably a problem. You should go to your doctor. <laughs> it won't rotate in that position. It will be told it'll be purely your hip that rotates in that position. And hence, what that means is that if you're trying to do this leg extension with your knees pointed in or out, it's not really going to work. And if it is working, the rotation is probably coming from the hip. So essentially, it's not going to make it's not it's not, it's just not going to work. And it'll probably feel uncomfortable if you do manage to execute it. And the second thing about that goes on to kind of understanding like how like the neuromuscular system is going to take you towards fatigue anyway. So one of the things that that might happen is that when you're doing a leg extension, you're pushing out and back in, out and back in, you know, as, as you do, as you near fatigue um, or as the set progresses, the relative contribution of each portion of those muscles might change. So you might find that when you do, you know, a heavy set of five, um, it's really like the you feel like the medial side of your quads, that teardrop muscle, you feel that working a little bit more at the start. But as you start to become fatigued, you feel the outside of your quad coming a little, in a little bit more. And that might even change as sets go on. And that's the important thing to understand about like muscle recruitment and the way your nervous system recruits your muscles. It's changing all of the time and it's changing based on previous exposure. So there's no one exercise that recruits you know, a specific muscle in a spe- in a specific way reliably over time, especially when they're on one side of the joint and all serving similar functions. So when it comes to knee extension, all portions of the quads are able to extend the knee. And, you know, there's even research on this where, you know, you do loads of hip flexion, which would mean you lift your knee up towards your chest, for example. You do loads of that before you do a leg extension. And the recruitment of the muscles within the exercise is going to be different then because you've already fatigued that, that rectus femoris, which is the muscle at the top of your quad, which also crosses the hip. So because that's fatigued, that then changes the way the muscles are recruited. So this stuff is complicated. And if there's really simple explanations like toes in, toes out, it's probably a bit reductionist. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is it's not a viable method for actually achieving the outcome, the adaptation that you think you're you're achieving, you know? And again, like you said, like what's actually happening is not a, a change in the contribution of those muscles. Although you may feel that what's really happening is you're you're internally or externally rotating at the hip, which then causes the feeling which isn't actually causing the or leading to an outcome that you think that it's leading to. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. So the other thing that I that I didn't go on. You're fine. No, go on. You didn't say yes. That's what I was going to say. You were nodding your head instead of actually talking, which is really actually quite stupid <laughs> considering this is recorded media. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, the final thing that I didn't touch on there was the fact that all those quad muscles are attaching at a common origin or a common insertion. So they're all attaching into a ligament that basically crosses your patella, your kneecap, and then inserts onto the front of your tibia so they all come together anyway when they're pulling on that leg so it's not like they're even inserting in different places where you could potentially bias them they're actually all inserting together so they're all pulling on the one place so rotating isn't really going to do a whole pile 
100% Kerry you're you're just a, a biomechanics whiz like oh my god like I'm surprised Jesus. that you, I'm surprised you don't have a Nobel Prize in like medicine or physiology yet <laughs> but anyway so that's one so again let, let's bring this back to the overall thought process so you're given this bit of information you then get you go okay cool I saw it on social media I was following X, Y, and Z fitness professionals, and they said, turn your toes in or rotate your rotate your legs out and you get a certain adaptation at this certain muscle. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. I can yeah, kind of make sense in my head. So obviously if I turn it this way and yeah, this one's stacked on top and this, yeah, okay, cool. I'll, I'll go try this in the gym. You go try it in the gym. Boom. You actually feel it then as well. You actually go, hmm. That actually kind of feels like I'm targeting that muscle as well, right? Then you flick on our podcast and we're basically saying that's a lie. Like, how do you critically evaluate that information? Like what, like, basically we're telling you your feeling is a lie and we're telling you that these other people are liars. So now you've got two conflicting opinions, two conflicting sound bites of information or whatever you want to call them. Like, how do you, as an individual actually think about these things or how do you actually find out the answer like you've you've put forward a, a convincing argument right but the person telling them this information put forward a convincing argument as well because their quads were juicy as fuck right so and then also their, their feelings themselves like they're like oh you actually feel the outside of my quad working a little bit oh i actually feel the the, the, the teardrop here working a little bit more so hmm, this kind of makes a little bit more sense you know, but then you tell them it's a lie. So how, how do they how do they critically evaluate that information? Yeah, so like the first thing is always to like, if someone's making a claim, like at least ask them why. Because, you know, you might go and you might feel that. And that might partially be because, you know, you've got more of a mental focus on that area. You're thinking about it more. You're diverting your attention there. And I mean, the fact that you are pushing in or out one way might change what muscle you feel because of the way you're trying to push. But at the end of the day, because you are still extending your knee in, in essentially one direction, all those muscles are going to work together as long as you go to fatigue. So like critically evaluating this stuff, like the best way to do it is to actually understand anatomy properly and to understand some exercise mechanics, you know, which is essentially a subdivision of biomechanics, which is a fairly complicated subject. Um, but like that, that's the best way to critically evaluate this stuff. But if you're just a lay person that is finding it difficult to, you know, navigate that stuff, I would just ask why. And I would ask, you know, is it, is this really making a difference? Why is it making a difference? And then you can just choose to trust us or not. Like, you know, like it, there's no, there's no hard and fast. That's disgusting. Are you sorry? That's, that's such fucking guru fucking, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it make, makes sense. Like, obviously, there is a point when you look at this information where you're like, okay, well, I kind of, like, unless you're willing to put in a lot of time researching this kind of stuff, and I don't even mean researching as in, like, you know, going to a lab and stuff, but, like, you know, typing into, like, PubMed or, you know, any kind of science-related site and looking this stuff up, you know, first of all, that requires you to have a lot of skills that a lot of people don't have, right? Like, even me saying PubMed there, people are kind of like, well, what the fuck is PubMed, you know? So perhaps you don't even know how to do that. But... 
what everyone or at least the vast majority of people know how to do is go onto something like Wikipedia, right? And you can just look at it. You can literally type in anatomy of the quads, right? Because obviously if you're looking at this and you're going, I want to target the quads by you know turning my leg in and out i want to target a certain point of the quad you can just go to something like wikipedia you can go to something you know even just an image from uh like a an internet uh image search you know you you can just look at that and go okay so let me actually just look sit down here for a second and look at these quad muscles right you're looking at them, you're visualizing them, you're going, okay so that's obviously that's what they look like. This is a visual representation of what these these boys look like right then you kind of go okay let me look at this wikipedia article what what is where did they where where's the origin of these muscles you're like okay so that's that's fair i can see where these these start out and then you're like where where is the insertion here like and you go okay i can see where they end right and then just think of those muscles as like an elastic band right and like gary said with that with that uh the the common insertion there at that uh, tibial tuberosity i believe it's called isn't it gary um (laughs) um you know like you look at that and you can go okay so that's where they all start and you think of it in your head you're like okay well if these are just like uh kind of elastic bands or they all they can do is lengthen and all they can do is short like that's not obviously the whole story because they do like shock absorb and they do a lot of other stuff as well but look for for a discussion on exercise if you just think of them as lengthening and shortening so all those little elastic bands which are those muscles how would turning your leg change that lengthening or shortening especially when you look at the overall picture of that quad exercise you're looking at the picture of the quad you're looking at the origin insertion of those muscles and even when you just look at it and do something like you suggested at the start here gary you know like try put your leg out straight and turn your feet in or out you realize that all that rotation is coming from the hip so you're looking at that you look at the image and you go okay so now i can see how this potentially would influence it you know so you're you're kind of backing up the the claim of the person that says that this does influence it but then you have to look at like how do the quads actually contract you know so you look at it and you go okay if i straighten my leg am i actually isolating just one of these these quad muscles you know like am i isolating just one of these elastic bands or these these bundle of elastic bands and you go okay I'm not really like when I straighten my leg, they're all pretty much contributing. Maybe they're contributing varying amounts, you know? So you're kind of like, okay, so we're kind of halfway in between what the two people are saying. You know, maybe we're looking at, again, like you said at the start, the adaptation at the end. Like, is this actually a meaningful adaptation? You know, okay, so I'm turning my my leg out. I'm trying to get, you know, the, the teardrop more or, yeah, you're trying to get the teardrop more, whatever the fuck it is. You know, you're turning your leg slightly out. You're like, yeah, that's kind of stacked on top. Maybe that's doing a little bit more of the work. You know, that's whatever. You look at the, the origin insertion. You're going, hmm, I could see an argument for that, right? And it kind of feels a little bit like that. But then you have to, like, layer on top of that the, the, the complete picture, which is how do those quads fire together or how do they contract together and then you can go this this argument may have a ever so slight meaningful contribution like maybe you turning your legs out on the quad or on a, on a leg extension contributes a few percentage points that you're able to get this this certain muscle to fire more again like you were saying like various reasons behind this especially with the feeling stuff like maybe you are focusing on it a little bit more you know getting that kind of stuff but you then look at the outcome 
and you look at maybe it's it's a, a 5%, we'll give it that, a 5% increased ability to contract a certain portion of the quad. How is that actually going to in- increase or decrease or do whatever to your actual end outcome? That's where you start having to think of things, right? So if you go, yeah, okay, so it's a, it's a 5% increase. Is that meaningful enough for you to change the entire way you do an exercise to get something that is a potential maybe uh, improvement on this certain muscle group when realistically most of the time what you're actually going to get is a disimprovement because you're now using less weight with the leg extension because you're not actually able to use all of the quad muscles and ha- have them all contribute equally because you're you're just said that you're taking it away you've given five percent more contribution to this muscle so that has to come from somewhere you know, and also you put yourself in this disadvantageous position. So now you're able to use less weight. So again, the bigger picture, when you look at the adaptation and you kind of go like, how much is this actually helping me? And is it meaningfully contributing to my adaptation? Then you start putting everything together. And obviously, again, as we're saying, like, that's a lot of work to do. And this is where this whole guruism, like Gary was saying, comes in, where you eventually end up kind of going, okay, I trust these guys because they put out good information. They seem to know what they're talking about. You, you know, you, you kind of start putting your belief, your trust in someone else because they they come up with rational thought processes around this kind of stuff, you know, because obviously you don't have the time to put it in. So that is obviously one way of going about things. Would you agree with that, Gary? Yeah, and I mean, in this specific example as well, I've got a challenge for you. If you do, if you are someone who feels like your quad, like that is the feeling that you experience, your quads only work um, in a certain place during an exercise. What I would challenge you to do is do a set of five, then do a set of 15, and then do a set of 30, and do them all like with nice controlled tempos um, all the way through the range right to the top, and see how that feeling that you experience varies from set to set and from the start of the set to the end of the set. And I assure you, you'll, you'll start to realize that oh, like all these muscles are actually working. They're just maybe I'm feeling that they're contributing more at different points. And you could even test that. But yeah, that that's worth trying. Right. So again, that's thought process one. It kind of carries over to the next few. So Gary, what's next? The next one was the idea that you should do wider lap pull downs for a wider back. And do you want to say something? Oh, sir, go on. Yeah, and this will probably, you know, go into a, a discussion about kind of grip width in general on these types of exercises. But this is a, a classic one that's been kind of propagated by bodybuilders for years and years. You know, that if you do, you should do a wider lat pull down if you want to, you know, train the lats more, get that wider back. And to a degree, you can see how people kind of come to this conclusion because essentially the wider you grip, the less you're likely to feel your biceps and your arm muscles working um, to a degree anyway. And then what you essentially feel is that the lats are working a bit more, but there's also the case that you're shortening them more in that plane of motion where your arms are coming from out to in. So you can sort of feel that going on. So you might feel like the lats are working more. And then that, that is, that essentially then carries over to you feeling like, oh, that equals, more width because obviously you know wider grip wider lats i feel my lats so it all makes a lot of sense however again when we start to break it down 
it starts to become a little less clear because essentially the reason that you're feeling that is because maybe your arms are working a little bit less or your biceps at least and then they might join another exercise and maybe your arms are coming down a little more in that position and you feel that a bit more but if you do let's say a neutral grip pull down where your hands are at shoulder width that's actually almost that's pretty much working your lats through a larger range of motion and it's equally as challenging but you might not feel that quite as much because it's in a different it's it's working in a different plane essentially um you're pulling from front down in front of your body um it's more extension based and it's a little bit different to the way in which you're doing it in the other on the other side but if you actually break it down to the muscular level like what is going on like what are we trying to achieve we're trying to achieve a case where our muscles are shortening against plenty of resistance ideally and your lats are shortening all the way from that top position right to the bottom and there's less resistance in that bottom position when your arms are close to your body in a neutral pull down versus when your arms are out wide in the wide grip pull down and hence there's going to be different sensation associated with that so it's more difficult at the bottom when you're doing a wide grip pull down and the sensation associated with that getting more difficult is going to be greater and you will feel your lats more but if you're in the center doing a neutral grip pull down for example you're working through a larger range of motion the resistance is getting challenging where you're a little where you're a little bit stronger and you've also got more muscles involved. So what you might find is that the sensation isn't isolated as much to any particular area. And that essentially explains why you're, why it mightn't be a good idea to go to base your decision solely on sensation. Is that fair enough? That's fair enough, right. So with, with that lap pull down, I think that's a, an easier one for people to kind of understand a little bit more because while it does generally feel like you're getting that kind of width like you're getting the kind of yeah, the the outside of your lat if you go for that kind of wider lat pull down position it kind of feels like you're, you're targeting that outside of your lat so people can kind of go yeah i understand that but then when you talk about the other grip positions you're like yeah but you're actually getting more of your overall lat from those positions you know so you're actually targeting a bigger amount of muscle mass which can then obviously hypertrophy and therefore actually produce the result you're looking for the adaptation you're looking for because your lat gets bigger you know like again like the like you're saying with the grip widths like obviously changing those up does change up the feeling of it does change up the contribution of it but how, do, how does someone look at that and go what 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 version like what grip width should i do if i'm trying to get a wider back like is it possible to even get a wider back like is there a grip width position that i can choose that will lead to the my, my back getting wider or is it just a, a case of needing to get bigger muscles in general you know basically what i'm saying is can i can i bias my back training to get wider not really like you sort of can like as in if you were just training like in a way that wasn't going to achieve that it'd be like pretty weird training because essentially like the lats are more or less like a big contributor to the width of your back at least below like the shoulder girdle so when they are growing they are getting thicker and that contributes to width and that can come from rowing exercises pull down exercises regardless 
of the grip. So there is likely to be, you know, variations in the relative contribution of different muscles. Um, and because essentially the lats, the way they're built is that they're more horizontal, you know, going straight across your back at the top and they begin to incline a little bit more so that they, so it's like a fan shaped muscle attached to your back. So those muscles are going to change a little bit, not just between exercises or their relative contribution between exercises, but also the different points in the range of motion. So the muscle, the, the relative contribution of different portions of fibers at the top of a pull down might vary to that scene at the bottom of a pull down. And the same could be said for that scene during a rowing exercise. And for me, the most reliable way to make sure that you're hypertrophying all of the fibers in those muscles um, is to do probably a, a rowing exercise and a pull down type of exercise. But to be honest, even at that, I think if you were to just choose one, a pull down would probably be your best bet because it is pretty much training all of the fibers. It's just that there might be some difference between those exercises. So I don't think there's anyone that is training in such a way that they're going to only have a really big part of a lat in one part and not in the other. Like that's, it's just not possible because they are all attaching in the same place. And despite their fan shape, they are all coming together at a common insertion. So they're all pulling on that same sort of rope, I guess you could say on the arm. So I wouldn't expect there to be much of a difference. That's fair enough. Yeah. Cause I kind of always think of like <clears throat> back training. I'm like, yeah, you essentially have like kind of, we'll say four planes of motion to kind of go through to kind of hit. If you were to go, oh, I want to design the absolute best. We can argue a, a fifth and maybe a sixth, but you know, <clears throat> you can go for that. We'll say with a, a kind of more uh, horizontal type thing, you can go for like a, a wider row and you can go for a closer grip row, you know, maybe like a, a one arm row, we'll just say, just to make it easier to kind of distinguish. And then you can go for a wider lap pull down and kind of a, a closer lap pull down. And again, like obviously they all change the relative contribution to how effectively you can train those muscles. But in my mind, I'm like, that would be the most complete way to train every portion of that lat somewhat equally. Like, obviously, we're, we're not getting into, like, kind of a lengthened position and kind of, like, we're not getting a, a perfect back train. Like, that. that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that's, like, the perfect back workout. But what I'm saying is those are the kind of planes of motion that you are dealing with. However, in my opinion, at the end of the day, the thing that's going to contribute most to your your back width, your back growth is generally going to be the ones that allow you to train the vast majority of those lap fibers, you know, like the, the essentially the most bang for your book exercises, which generally for most people or people even is going to be the kind of closer arm variations, you know? So even in like a, a more, say a, <clears throat> a shoulder width neutral grip, lap pull down that would be my that would be my go-to you know or a, a chin up you know maybe you're not strong enough for a chin up but that kind of shoulder width maybe slightly inside that maybe slightly outside that depending on your overall frame and your your kind of build but around that kind of shoulder width area and i would do that for both the lat uh pull down and then also the row like a row like in my mind we'll just say a bent over row something like that just outside shoulder width distance so your arms are kind of at just less than a 45 degree we'll say and you're rowing in towards the, the navel area in my mind 
that's kind of getting the two most bang for your bucks. And that's what's going to contribute the most to lat width purely by virtue of getting your lats bigger overall. Would you agree with that? Yeah, like I think as you said, like that that neutral grip sort of lat pull down at around shoulder width is pretty much my go-to with most clients, especially when they can't do things like chin-ups. Because, you know, I like to get clients to work on chin-ups uh, every now and then, especially just because I think it's useful to have those skills. If you're ever traveling and you want to do some training, I think it's nice to be able to do some bodyweight training. And lots of people seem to agree with that. Um, but... The, like, as you said, the neutral grip pull down would be my go to. Um, and the reason it's it's definitely a good idea to have a rowing exercise in your program is not just because it might train the lats different, but also because it is training all of the other muscles mm. of shoulder extension um, and the scapular muscles that are supporting that. Um, so that that to me is probably where the back width versus back thickness discussion has come yeah. from more than anything that, you know, it's been it's been turned into a discussion about the lats train being trained in a certain way. Whereas what's actually going on is that the heavy rowing type of exercises that people do are also loading all of the scapular muscles. So you're getting people that have thicker traps, thicker rhomboids, um, thicker rear delts, and even thicker spinal erectors from having to support um, the trunk in those movements. And that's why you're seeing people associate those exercises with back thickness. Whereas a row and a pull down are both training the lats. And it's not like you're getting very different um hypertrophy outcomes um so yeah if, if i was trying to get, give someone an exercise to train the lats like a neutral grip pull down is a beautiful option um and sure you can you can argue that like something like uh the old school like nautilus pullovers and stuff like that are great but at the end of the day like there's probably like a handful of them like around the place <laughs> um in the world whatever about in ireland <laughs> You're not getting them that's in carry. Fair, that's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you are, you have hit the nail on the head there with the, the back weight and discussion and thickness discussion. And essentially people going like, oh, rows build thickness and, you know, like lap pull downs, pull ups build width. And it's like, yeah, like you, you, you're just ignoring the contribution that, like, say, even even something like a bent over row, like the, the contribution that has to your like rhomboid growth, you know, and like that's not, they're, they're not exactly something that you're going to yeah. see hugely visually like uh, to a large extent uh but obviously then you see like the, the traps and stuff like and again like you're saying like the, those whole shoulder extensors and everything like it just forgets that you know something like a bent over row is hitting your 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 traps lower upper fucking everything way more than say like a lap pull down is doing unless you're doing it completely wrong <laughs> you know um but I, I think that you then translates to like someone does rows, their back looks thicker because all these other muscles are growing, which t tend to grow in a more like out. If that mean if that makes sense, like that kind of they they tend to grow back backwards. If that makes sense, yeah. whereas like you do something like a a lat pull down, it kind of makes your lats grow, which tend to grow just when for, by virtue of like hypertrophy, they tend to grow out to the side like sideways you know so they, they kind of tends to make it look like you're growing more width but it's just by virtue of getting bigger lats but yeah so i think like that kind of helps people with the, the overall thought process of that like so well a wider grip lat pull down is not necessarily bad it falls victim to the same thought process or the same same issue that the kind of the, the leg extensions falls down down with so yes it does to an extent, 
allow you to feel that area working a little bit more. Now, unlike the leg extension, which doesn't necessarily, well, doesn't have uh, an actual adaptation that's associated with that. Like you're just, in my opinion, anyway, you're not going to get huge. Like, again, we can argue maybe it's a two, 3% change in the, the, the overall adaptation you receive by turning your quads out a little bit and then focusing a little bit more. But I think with the, the lap pull down, like there is obviously a, a benefit to the wider grip variation. Like you are actually able to target that, that area. However, when we look at the adaptation as well, while it makes sense that, yes, we are able to target this, again, unlike my opinion towards the leg extension, which I, I don't think you're going to in any way meaningfully target the, the, the different heads of the, the quad by changing your, your rotation of your leg. With the lap pull down, while you can meaningfully target it, it still ends up, in my opinion, meaningless because you then have to add something into your training or do more volume with that that takes away from the stuff that's actually going to give you the most bang for your buck, which would be, say, like a, a neutral grip lat pull-down, which then is going to get more overall lat fibers, more overall lat musculature involved, and therefore your lats are going to get bigger, and then therefore they're going to get wider. So while, yes, in again, in my opinion here, the, the wide lat grip the wide grip lat pull down is a perfectly viable exercise. You know, that's fine. If you want to have that in, you go, I feel that really a huge amount. I personally wouldn't be adding that in if it in any way took away from the volume that I could do and recover from, from the stuff that's actually going to contribute meaningfully to increasing the width of my back, which is in my opinion, going to be that kind of uh, neutral grip row or sorry, that neutral grip lap pull down and maybe some rows as well, you know? Would you agree with that statement, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing to consider is just that like, it's not always totally predictable, like what your outcome is going to be like from doing a certain exercise and a certain amount of variation over time is probably a good idea because we're not just training muscles, like we're also training joints and when you are doing like muscle specific exercises like when you're doing a, a pull down for the purpose of training your lats like having some variation over time also allows you to know hit hit different muscles in your forearms maybe it's the case that uh, one of the one of the tendons in your in your forearms is getting a little bit tired and when you change grips for, for four weeks it, it kind of dissipates that that sense of fatigue or pain or whatever like that's a good idea so variation in and of itself is a good idea it also enhances you know your ability to have a wider capacity for movement, if you will. Um, you know, you've got a wider motor level of motor skills and you're not just the guy that can only do a specific type of pull down. Like you see that sometimes where people might be able to do like 20 chin ups, like with an overhand grip, but if they do like a, a chin up with like an underhand supinated grip, they can do like three. So like, it's, it's a good idea to just have skills, I guess too. But no, that makes sense. Yeah. So next up is isolating certain muscles, example, upper chest day and lower chest day. Okay, so this was the specific example provided. And this again, like will follow a very similar pattern to what we've um, discussed already. So what you'll have, what you may have seen um, or heard or, you know, read is that certain exercises work the upper chest, certain sex, certain exercises work the lower chest 
and maybe even some some exercises work the inner and outer chest um that's not uncommon to hear and again like everything we're talking about these things have some grounding in truth and some grounding in you know it's essentially intuitive that someone would think this and um, the one we can get rid of very quickly is the idea that there's an inner and outer chest i can explain that a little bit more in a few minutes but for now they're not legitimate portions of the pec muscle so you don't really have to worry too much about that however the upper and lower chest is a more valid sort of you know split up of the chest because you do have a clavicular head which is essentially the upper pec and that is does attach in a different place so that attach attaches to your clavicle or your collarbone so those fibers are, are going from your upper arm up to your collarbone and you can see how they might have a different function to the fibers that are th that are then attaching on your lower sternum which is essentially that little breastbone in the center of your chest so you do have that 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 clavicular head the upper chest and then you've got fibers that are attaching down all along your sternum and even on like the costal cartilages of your ribs as well so you do have different parts of the pec and that is very legitimate and it is essentially a fan-shaped muscle meaning that the fibers at the top and the fibers at the bottom are going to be pulling in different directions and that is one of the reasons why when we're doing a lot of our chest exercises we don't really have to worry about what portion of the pec is working because it's all working together because if you've got a fan-shaped muscle and you know, some of the fibers are pulling upwards a little bit. Some of the fibers are pulling downwards a little bit. Some of the fibers are pulling straight across. When they all contract together, they all pull in the same direction. So they all pull the arm across the body. So if you're doing something like a flat bench press and you don't have a huge arch, or you're doing a chest press, or you're doing a regular fly where the arm's coming straight across the body, most of the pec fibers are going to be trained there. Okay, so like that, that's taking care of most of your pec hypertrophy and pec strength. Now, whether or not one should add in specific exercises after that to train more of the upper portion and maybe more of the lower portion will depend on, one, your goals. Like if you're a bodybuilder, it's very different to being the average person. And two, the response that you've had to training thus far. So if you've been training all along and you find that your pec hypertrophy is very even, then there may not be a need to add in any more specific work, even if your goal is to be a bodybuilder. Whereas if you're the type of person that you've been training all the time, you've got a big arch when you bench press or when you do any sort of chest pressing exercises and your lower chest has become really well developed, but the upper chest is quite flat, quite underdeveloped, then that is a case where you start to bring in more of those specific exercises. So it should be included on a sort of needs analysis basis as opposed to just you know having different exercises different exercises for each portion of the muscle now that doesn't mean that variation is bad because as we've already discussed it's good and what we can also say is that if you're doing something like an incline let's say where you're trying to target the upper chest even if it does become the case that you are targeting more of the upper chest like we said the rest of the chest is still going to be working most of the time to bring that arm across the body so there's no there's no we don't want to create a false dichotomy where it's upper chest versus lower chest or or, or that for any other muscle group because they are all functioning together so it is true indeed that you know you can create exercises that bias certain portions over other portions um namely like something like an, an incline type of press or any exercise where the arm is coming across the body um, a little bit higher 
than it would be in something like a bench press. So for example, a cable fly is probably easier to understand. If you're doing a cable fly where your arm is coming up towards the opposite ear, let's say, so it's coming across and up, that's going to target more of the upper chest. And if you're doing a cable fly where it's coming across and down, you know, as if you're bringing your hands together in front of your stomach a little bit, then that's going to target more of the lower chest. So it is valid to claim that they have that you can isolate them a little bit more, but they are all working together. Okay, so that's point number one. And that's that's worth considering because you may currently have a program that has, you know, four chest exercises. One is for the upper and um, one is for the upper to middle. The next is for middle to lower and the next is for the lower, whereas that's probably not necessary and is likely to be overkill. Then, as I said at the start, the whole inner and outer pec thing, that has been developed mainly based on sensation. So, for example, if you shorten your, if you do a cable fly, you're generally going to feel like the pec is, you're generally going to feel it more on the inner side of the pec when you're in the shortened position, when your arms are together. And that's pretty much just because all of those muscle fibers are shortening in together in one location versus over a larger location at the end of the range of motion. So you're just basically feeling your muscle tightening up together and that's part of creating that sensation, but it's not specifically targeting any inner portion of the pec. So you don't need to worry about that. And likewise, when you're in the outer range, like if you're doing something like a dumbbell fly and you're down in the stretch position, you might feel like you feel it more towards your shoulder and you're thinking that that's the outer pec, whereas it could just be the case that you're reaching a stretch position and that happens to be where you where you're sensing it it could be the case that it's your anterior delts or something else in the shoulder that's creating that sensation even your upper bicep so again i wouldn't be considering the outer and inner classification as being valid now that doesn't mean that the hypertrophy pattern or regional hypertrophy is the exact same for every exercise it will vary but it's not as simple as that classification for sure so as you can see there's an element of truth and, and you can understand how these things have developed. Um, but overall, you don't need to complicate it by having six different chest exercises. Yeah, and it comes back to that. So again, like like we were saying, like, again, like you can see like the evolution of these thought processes with the leg extension, there's no real foundation. Like we're talking maybe, you know, a few percentage points p- potential change in the adaptation. With the, the wide lat pull down, you can kind of go, okay, cool. So there, it, it's not wrong. And it's certainly applicable, but is it going to lead to the adaptation you're trying to elicit, right? And again, n- not really. Like you're not going to get a wider back from wider lap pull downs. And then again, with the with the, the the chest training, you can see, okay, so there is a physiological or an anatomical or whatever fuck you want to call it uh, basis for this, especially like the upper and lower chest, like the inner and outer. Mm, no, not really, right? But the upper and lower chest, you can see that there is an anatomical reasoning or rationale behind this right and then you can see how people would modify change their exercise technique their exercise selection to go about targeting these certain fibers however as i said at the very start a lot of this is going to be yeah uh, this is meaningful but also meaningless and like i said like a lot of times like you you like there there is no clear delineation between like this is working your entire lower chest and not touching your upper chest at all whereas this is working your upper chest and not working your lower chest like there's no defined delineation between that 
you know? So you're not able to isolate specifically that portion. And again, uh, a lot of people will find this if you try to do, you know, like that, that kind of uh, cable fly in that kind of, you know, most muscular position. Like you'll see this and you'll see people do this. You'll see bodybuilders do it, you know, that kind of most muscular position. And their upper chest is popping to fuck, you know? You can look at someone like, say, Franco Colombo, you know, who used to train with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he'll do like a most muscular and his upper chest will be stacked, like proper huge, right? And it's clearly contracting in that position, you know? So you think of that, like if you're doing a cable fly or a decline bench and you're going, I'm doing this to target my lower chest. Like, that's correct. That's fine. Like, there, there's no, I don't think anyone would argue with you in saying that, that that targets the lower chest a little bit more, right? But it's not isolating it away from the upper chest. Like, the upper chest is still getting trained when you do that, you know? So, again, how much, what percentage are we talking? Impossible to say, right? However, well, it's not impossible to say we'd have to do some some studies on that shit but you could you could you could delineate that out you know um but for each individual it's impossible to say unless you've been studied yourself so we'll say like it's a a a 30 70 you know maybe when you're doing this decline press you're getting 70 percent lower chest and only 30 percent activation of your upper chest of like i mean like full capacity of what it could potentially handle and you're going okay cool that's fine you to realize you are still getting the adaptations across the board however to an extent it does change the adaptations right and then to an extent it doesn't change the adaptations right and the, the way you then interpret that is then how does this change your overall approach your training approach like gary was saying earlier on like you might see people going like oh, well, I have to essentially target every single portion of the chest or else I didn't get a, a full workout. And they'll start with like your your bench press. They'll start with, or they'll start with like uh, a decline press. They'll start then do a bench press. Then they'll do an incline press. And they'll basically do uh, fly variations for all of those. You know, they'll do like uh, dumbbell fly variations for all of those. And they'll do cable fly variations for all of those. Because they're like, oh man, I have to get the, the lower to upper chest and I have to get the inner to outer chest as well right and like that's you'll see people doing they're <laughs> essentially end up doing like you know nine exercises or something they're like yeah really great chest work i've got every single last thing and like yeah to an extent you did but in my mind i'm like what what's the most bang for my book here you know maybe doing a bench press with an arch is going to get you everything that you need you know, like a bench press, like maybe you will still need to do some sort of fly variation because you're not really getting into that that kind of movement. But other than that, it's like you're you, if you have a slight bit of an arch, you're going to get the upper chest working. You're going to get the lower chest working. Do you really need to do more? Right? Again, you might argue, yeah, I actually do need to do more. My lo- my upper chest is just completely lagging behind my lower chest. I've been benching my whole life, and while yes, I agree what you, what you guys are saying that there is obviously clearly a contribution from the upper chest. <clears throat> my lower chest is much bigger than my upper chest. Again, if we just use that same contribution that I was saying before, it's a 70 for the lower and a 30 for the upper. You have never maximized your training for that upper chest. You know, you've always only been given it, you know, 
of the love of that exercise, you know? So then you go, okay, well, you know, maybe I do need to start doing something like an incline press, whatever variation you want, you know? But then again, realize that you are still getting some lower uh, chest activation from that exercise. Again, maybe we'll say it's a perfect swap. You now get 70% upper chest and now it's only 30% lower chest. You know, so you, you want to kind of think of these things like with this one, it's a good example because it shows that, you know, this this tip or execution, whatever fuck you want to call it, tip uh, does have a basis in reality. But then again, you have to start thinking like, how does this actually change my my training approach overall? And for some of you, it may change your training approach. Maybe you're going, man, I didn't even realize this, that the upper and lower chest could actually be isolated and you know my lower chest is pretty good to go but my upper chest is just shit you know so maybe you start doing moving stuff so you're actually targeting your upper chest just a little bit more maybe some of you are also looking at it or listening to this and going yeah man i've been doing those fucking nine exercises to target every single portion of my chest and yeah i realize now that yeah i don't need to do that i could do like three exercises and get 99 percent of the results that I was getting by fucking spending two hours in the gym doing these nine exercises, you know? So what do you have anything else thought process wise on that Gary, especially with the, the adaptations, like obviously it does change the adaptations, but how does that then change your approach to uh, procuring those adaptations? Yeah. So I suppose like the, the best thing to, to always come back to is just asking yourself, what am I actually hoping to achieve? You know, what am I hoping to achieve by doing any of these exercises? And if someone's just like, I kind of want to just uh, have a better chest. Like I just wanted to look a little bit better. It's like, all right, cool. Just do a, a, an exercise that is relatively neutral. And by neutral, I mean, it's in a flat plane. You're not doing a super incline or super decline, or you're not bringing the arms way up or way down. If you're doing a fly, like that's the easiest way to understand it. The arms coming more or less across the body in any of those exercises. And then you start there and you just keep going and you see what happens. And like, that is most people. And I think that's something that's often, we maybe often lose, lose sight of that in, in the fitness industry is that like most people are not the bodybuilders that have been training for 10 years that now need to focus on really biasing specific parts of muscles instead your goal is to kind of get going with something normal and not to worry about all these specifics that are that some people are worrying about and that is the purpose of this podcast like the purpose of this podcast is not to get you leave you going away with loads of more tools to focus on like everything we've been focusing on is saying that you know, you don't really need to worry about this in the in the leg extension. You don't need to worry about doing loads of different grips on the lat pull down. You know, you don't need to worry about doing loads of different chest exercises. So that's where I would start. I would just realize that muscles shorten and they lengthen, so to speak. They do so under resistance. And if you're challenging it with an exercise that is applying resistance against that movement, you're getting most of your results from doing that. So always start there. That's fair enough. Now, we're going to cover two more things, but one of them is related to this, and that is squat stance, wide to close stance. How is that changing the quad adaptations? Because we've already discussed the quad, and this would now seem to be similar enough to the the chest one that we've just discussed, like the upper and lower chest. So 
people are telling me if I do a wider stance squat, I'm going to get more glutes and people tell me it's more hamstrings. Um, but then if they, if I do a closer stance squat, I'm going to get more quads. So is that a fair enough evaluation? Is that something that I should believe? Should I go away thinking that? Yeah. So this again is something that I can understand why it's true, but it's just not necessarily as simple as we think. So, you know, lots of people will say that if we do really narrow squats or narrow leg presses or whatever, that makes it more quad focused, but that's not necessarily the case because the quads are not really changing the way that they work depending on our stance width. They're essentially still just extending the knee against the resistance that's applied there. What does change more so is the range of motion that you're working through and potentially the length of some of the hip muscles. So what tends to happen is that close stance squats are often associated with squatting really deep, so really low. And when we squat really low, we generally work more quads. So the biggest contributor to the quads working more is the amount of knee flexion that you get into in your squat. So, and you can think of that most of the time as being how deep you get. So how deep you get, like, are you getting to the point where your thighs are touching your calves or are you not getting anywhere near that? If you're not getting anywhere near that, your quads aren't probably, they're probably not doing as much as they possibly could in a squat versus how someone like a, an Olympic weightlifter um, might experience, you know, their, the quad stimulus from their squat. Um, so again, this is something that does have an element of truth, because if you are that person that can squat really low in a narrow stance, you probably are feeling your quads quite a bit, but if you do a slightly wider stance, that's not likely to significantly change it until the point that you're going so wide that it's actually changing the depth that you're able to get into, um, at the knee joint. Um, like you can potentially argue that if you're really, really wide, your adductors, um, your groin area might limit how deep you can get. And then that could be the limiting factor to you being able to work your quads more. So again, this has an element of truth, but the, the real take home point that I would take away from this is that choose a stance that, that is most comfortable for you to go as low as is comfortable, essentially. Like that's, that's the goal. You want to get down nice and low to be able to train your quads into deep enough knee flexion. And if you can do that, I think you're taking care of the needs of the quads. Yeah. So another one of those that is like, yeah, it does have a basis. It does have a good thought (laughs) process, but generally it's not what people are saying it is. If you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not because your, your legs are closer or further apart. It's more to do with how deep you are then getting in that position you know, how much knee flexion you're then getting into that position. Um, so again, it's one of those ones where it's like, okay, so once you actually understand what's occurring, you can see why these sound bites come out, but that doesn't mean that that should be something that you change your your exercise selection towards, you know, because you'll see people go like that and go, oh yeah, so I have to get a, a close stance leg press then is what I should do. And it's like, okay, but you then start seeing them and they're doing this like kind of half- rep type position they're not actually getting a huge amount of knee flexion because they're on like a leg press and whatever way the leg press is set up once they bring their legs closer together they're only able to get like a small amount of knee flexion it's like i don't think that that's going to meaningfully contribute to changing the adaptation you get in your quads 
you know? So again, it is one of those ones where it's like, yeah, this actually does make sense, but that doesn't mean that the, the things that people do to then put that into their training program makes sense, you know? And then, yeah. go on. And like the reason that this is important, like, because you, you might be listening to this, you might be just thinking, why bother explaining that? If, if, if it does end up potentially make someone get more quad growth when they go narrower and deeper, why don't you just leave it at that? And the reason is because if you want to analyze this stuff properly, you have to think about all of the variables and it's, it's not just stance width. It's how far, how far forward your knee is going, how much of your squat is coming from hip motion versus um, knee motion versus ankle motion you know how are the different muscles changing their lengths in your squat or leg press stance and the reason all that becomes important is because i've seen it time and time again where guys are are deliberately bringing their squats into the point where their feet are touching even though it's not really improving their strength or allowing them to get any deeper and they're just doing it because they think that that in isolation is increasing the contribution from the quads whereas if they went a little bit wider they have a more comfortable stance there they're stronger there and that is obviously going to be more conducive of you building your quads so if you have to really pull the weight back to do a specific stance or or any exercise variation that someone is telling you to do to train a specific muscle then what you always need to ask is is the trade-off in the amount of force I'm able to produce in terms of the weight you're able to lift, is that worth the relative change in the way this muscle might contribute? And a lot of the time, you'll find that it probably isn't. That's fair enough. Now, one final one, again, related to what we were discussing with the chest. Arching in the bench press. What's the story with that? Yeah. Yeah, this, this one came in from someone in our Instagram DMs who was, you know, told by their exercise science lecturer that this was harmful, that you shouldn't be, you know, doing any sort of arch, arching during the bench press. It wasn't really explained why, um, but generally, like, the narratives are that, like, oh, it's maybe, like, bad for your back or bad for your shoulders or, like, whatever it might be, um, whereas it's actually beneficial because... Like, like this, this one is actually the opposite of true, which is kind of a good thing um, to finish on a high note. But basically, when you arch in the bench press, what you end up doing is giving yourself more of an ability to stabilize the lower body. So it's easier to get your feet into a nice, strong position, unless you're paddy and all the benches are too small for you. <laughs> yeah, it's disgusting. Getting... What's the crack with that? Like, literally, like, I have to put my feet beside my head to get any kind of, like, arch <laughs> whatsoever, like. so you can kind of create a little bit more stability in the lower body and by virtue of having that arch you're able to really lock yourself into the bench and transfer that force up from the lower body so if you can arch your back that allows you to raise up the rib cage so the bottom of your rib cage or your sternum is up higher and you're able to dig your shoulders and your scapula down deep into the bench and that does a couple of things that leads to you being able to recruit your chest muscles a bit more. So if you're struggling to feel your chest during the bench press, improving your arch and improving your ability to pinch your shoulder blades back is a really good way of improving that. And um, so it essentially puts you in a better position to be able to use your chest as effectively as possible. Um, and also like you can argue that it might reduce your risk of shoulder injury at some point in the future, because if you're in a position that 
you're not able, you're not arching at all. Your shoulder blades aren't pinched back as much as they possibly could be. Um, you're working through a larger range of motion, which isn't like an independent risk factor for injury or anything, but you're also not using those chest muscles. So you're essentially putting more and more force on other muscles and structures that may not tolerate that over time. Like it's not, it's not inherently going to injure you, but it's just goes to show that suggesting that the opposite where when you act, when you arch the back injures you is definitely not true and potentially the opposite of true and when it also comes like it also comes down to the question of is it harmful to have your back arch that much because there are certain cases in weightlifting and gymnastics where you get extension type of injuries which are referred to as spondylolisthesis like it can be kind of common in some populations if my uncle actually got an injury like that a few weeks ago he like fell off the side of some cliff onto a tree or something i don't know what he was at but there you go this is this is what you get in carry like you just fucking you don't know what's gonna hit you the next day like. <laughs> yeah you just fall on a tree who's on like but um but yeah you can get those types of injuries associated with extensions and potentially other types of extension injuries but what you have to realize is that that is when we have very high forces in extension what we're dealing with in this case is you getting into an extended position but you're held there consistently and there's no there's no force from that weight that is really acting to push you into further extension or anything. You're locked there by the bench at both ends of the spine, upper and lower. And the place that the bench is coming, the, the weight is coming out to touch your chest. That's not like in the center of the arch or anything. So you're not really challenging those muscles that much. Now you may have experienced cases where you do get a little bit of back pain that's associated with that. And that can come from you holding those muscles in a really sharp position and you can get a sort of cramping sensation. I wouldn't worry too much about that. I'd just maybe firstly practice it more over time. You'll get used to it. You'll tolerate it. But also just make sure you're not really shoving yourself far beyond the range of motion that's comfortable and make sure it's it's a range of motion that you're actually used to. So you can reduce it in the short term and you'll get used to it a little bit more in the long term. And I think that covers that one. Yeah, and also obviously anything is going to lead to injury if you're just weak in that position like if you just go oh i've never done this position and i'm just going to arch up to fuck and use what i normally use on the bench press like that's obviously not you've just changed the exercise mechanics overall exactly. like if you are weak in that like we'll call it a hyper extended position like you've never never been in this position you've never strengthened this position like it's only natural that you're going to start getting that cramping sensation but again that's just your ability to tolerate the the load essentially there in that position you know like most people are actually weak as fuck in that hyper extension position like they can't even do like say a, a basic gymnastic bridge and stuff you know and um, again that's obviously shoulder mobility as well and like to an extent you know hip mobility but like they, they can't even get their spine in into that range you know so obviously in that population a hundred percent i'd expect injury then if they tried to fucking arch up the fuck in a bench press you know like I, i'd almost be expecting it until they get stronger until they strengthen that until they've adapted to that stressor that stimulus you know so again like with anything anytime you change your exercise mechanics like you're obviously not or you at least shouldn't expect to be using the same weight you were using before to be using the same amount of volume you were using before you know you just don't have those adaptations and like with everything you should ease into it you know Anyway, that's my thought process there, Gary. Yeah, I think that is important because I actually think that's one of the most neglected things when people talk about 
injury risk, certain things that predispose you to injury. Nobody talks about the load and your tolerance for that load. And everyone talks about specific positions. Like, like you are not protected from injury by, you know, you could, you could have literally the most picture perfect, however that, that looks in your head or however someone might describe it. You could have the most picture perfect exercise techniques, exercise execution, whatever. No one could possibly point out a flaw with it. But if you do 20 sets of 10 to failure, you might get injured. You're probably going to have some pain. And that is simply associated with you doing far too much load versus your tolerance for that load. And that's something you always need to come back to when you're thinking about injury. That has to be the first line of call. Like you don't, you shouldn't go straight to saying, oh, this person has this imbalance or it's this part of their structure or it's this part of their technique. It's like, what were they actually exposed to and what could they tolerate previously? They're always the first questions, at least in my mind. 100% Gary. Anyway, I think we should wrap it up here. I think it's around an hour, 16, 17 minutes now. Um, do you have anything else to say to that overall discussion? Because I think that kind of helps people frame everything in, in in their head in terms of like starting to critically evaluate exercise tips, tricks, or whatever the fuck you want to call it, whatever we're discussing. Um, they, they, they can start critically evaluating that and going, okay, so I can understand the thought process behind looking at these things. And essentially, from everything we've discussed, it boils down to looking at the overall anatomy, getting a, a big picture of that, looking at the exercise itself, looking at the exercise modifications themselves, and then looking at the adaptations we're trying to achieve both at the start position, like what's the overall goal of the program? Like, are you trying to be sports specific here? Are you trying to be like gain strength? Are you trying to change your body composition? Like what's the overall goal? And then the outcome at the end as well in terms of, okay, so we've looked at the anatomy, we've looked at everything and you kind of understand the, the relative contributions of the, the different muscles and you kind of understand how changing these will change that exercise. And then you can look at the outcome at the end of that. So making these changes, does it actually change the outcome that we're looking to influence? Like, is there a noticeable difference? Like, or is it just like a, a two to 3% difference that essentially isn't worthwhile given the fact that it's then taking volume away from something else? You know, so I think people have that kind of critical thought process now. But is there anything else you'd like to to add to that? Yeah, the only other thing I'd add is that there also doesn't always have to be a perfect reason for what you do. Like there should be some rationale, but I mean, like you don't have to have a specific justification for why you swap from a dumbbell press to a barbell press to a chest press um, over time. Like you can just do that as part of healthy variation within a training program. And I think people often get too caught up with having a reason for everything. And it's probably a good idea to just do a spectrum of things over time um, and, and have a general bank of exercises that are effective, that are designed in line with the things that we've been talking about. Um, so one, once an exercise is useful, like <clears throat> don't be afraid to, to keep that in your bank but to still vary it over time. It doesn't always have to be the same thing. Like you could you could find the most perfect leg press ever, but it doesn't mean it's the only thing that you ever do in your whole leg training forever. Um, because, you know, it may be the case like that if you're always doing the same exercise, 
that the specific the specific way that those muscles those joints etc are being put under stress that they essentially become overloaded prematurely over time so they become overloaded whereas if you slightly switch, switched out the way you were you were loading that structure and um, those group of structures group of muscles that might potentially allow you a little bit more longevity like that may be the case so variation is just a fairly sound idea i think that's fair enough so i'm going to wrap it up here um, and <clears throat> hopefully that gave people a good understanding or at least a a beginner understanding of the critical thought process involved in exercise selection and exercise modification and all that kind of jazz as i said at the start it's not meant to be a comprehensive overview of everything it's just meant to kind of start getting you thinking about these little tips and tricks that you've been given you know these little things that people say but don't necessarily give you a justification for or a rational explanation of you know and i should say that we do have some spaces open for coaching and again i said it i think like two or three weeks ago and it's happening exactly as i said but it starts getting busier over the next few weeks and we've already got a few more i think we've got three in the the email that i have to get back to we people start going oh shit summer's coming up like summer's kind of coming up in the next 12-ish kind of weeks so people start going oh i need to start getting shreddy for summer uh, and then they start getting in contact with us so if that is you i would highly recommend you do it sooner rather than later because you know we we do only have a certain amount of spaces available but also it's easier to get you results if we are spending more time with you rather than going oh i have a holiday at this exact date and you have eight weeks till that holiday like obviously it's a lot harder to get results in those eight weeks rather than 12 weeks before your holiday you know so now is the time to start planning ahead if you are interested you know the link is in the description in terms of the the online one-to-one coaching we do if you are also interested in the group coaching you want a community an environment of people that are all trying to achieve similar results achieve a similar goal you know we do have the group coaching. It's a much more affordable uh, price point. It's a much more affordable service overall. Uh, so if you are interested in that, that again is in the description. Other than that, I think it's just, you know, like, share, comment, subscribe, all that kind of stuff uh, with the podcast. Because I've been saying it the last few weeks and actually people are doing it. And it does actually help the visibility of the podcast overall. Like, you know, put it on your, your Instagram story and like tag us in it we will reshare it, you know, all that kind of stuff. It actually does help a huge amount. Because you know when you're listening to podcasts or whatever and people say it and you're just kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. But like genuinely, it does actually help. Like if you subscribe, if you comment, if you fucking do all that stuff, um, especially on the social media sites, if you see it on Instagram, you're like, oh shit, yeah, I must go listen to that. Like just leave a like, leave a comment, you know, tag someone else. Like all of that stuff, as meaningless as it does seem in the overall grand scheme of things, it does actually help our visibility a huge amount, you know? And at the end of the day, like this is a free service, like because we like we actually genuinely want to help people. So if you could help us help more people, we would be completely grateful, you know? Um do you have anything else to say, Gary? Just that it's uh, too easy. That's about it. Yeah, you say it all the time, Gary, and guess what? It it's literally too is too easy. Anyway, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, peace out, guys.